Let's take our Bibles today and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, for those of you who are regulars, we're coming to the end. This is the penultimate sermon, number 81. 82 is where we'll end in two weeks' time. And uh, it's been a great… I was rather amused by the writer who says in verse 22, uh, I appeal to you, brothers, bear this with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Well, we may want to take that up with him when we see him, but brief it has not been. Certainly it hasn't been brief for you as we've been taking our time going through it. I could have taken more time, by the way, so you've been spared another hundred sermons that I didn't preach. Uh, <clears throat> just, just saying. We're going to read verses 17 uh, to 19 and then from 22 to the end, uh, final kind of instructions. <clears throat> Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, but that would be no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that that I may be restored to you the sooner. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. It's sometimes said that there is a failure of leadership in the church. That may well be. However, it could just as easily be said that there is a failure of followership in the church. For effective churches require both sides of the leadership coin, those who lead and those who follow. Of course, it all, it all comes down to what you mean by leadership. We need to say that when we talk about church leadership, we are talking about an entirely different species of leadership than you will find in the military, the corporate, or the political realms. Christian leaders are not generals, they are not CEOs, they are not governors. Christian people may occupy any one of those roles and do a great job and serve effectively, but the church church is a radically different kind of institution. Christ is the head, and its leaders are servants. The greatest role model for pastoral work and leadership in the church in its history outside of the Scripture, is probably Gregory the Great. He was bishop of Rome, great and godly man, a man that we would happily have here in this pulpit preaching. In other words, not like Pope Francis. Uh, Pope Gregory the Great was a man who uh, focused his life on the Scriptures, and it was he who coined the expression in Latin, servus, servorum, dei, 
the servant of the servants of God. And it was not merely a title for him. It was the way he lived his life and the way he conducted his ministry. The practical part of this closing section of Hebrews has highlighted the role of leaders in the church. Back in verse 7, the author has reminded the people he's writing to of the leaders who first spoke the Word of God to them. These were the leaders who had introduced them to Christ, through whom they'd been converted. These were the leaders who, from their earliest days perhaps in the church, had been teaching them the Word of God. Now they're dead, now they're in glory, and he's encouraged them to remember, to remember their ministry and to remember what they learned and to thank God for that and to imitate their faith. Then at the end, you'll notice that he gives greetings. He, he says, right at the very end of the, of the book, he says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. The leaders belong to the saints, that is, they're part of God's people, they're part of the church, but they have a role to play as leaders within the church. And now here this morning, here in verse 17, he speaks about your leaders, your guide. The older translations have your leaders, trust your leaders. The word obey, I don't know why it's obey in the ESV. Guide, uh, trusting, or putting your confidence in your leader would be a better translation. Put your confidence in your leaders and submit to them, he says. Now, the word used here, as I've said, could be translated guide. It's one of a number of words used in the New Testament for leaders in the church. They're rulers because they have the rule of the church. They're overseers because they have to oversee the work of the church. They're guides because they lead you into spiritual life. They're uh, elders, which isn't just that they're old, but that they are mature in their faith and you look up to them. They're shepherds or pastors. They're teachers. They're stewards. They're bishops. They're watchmen. They're fathers of the church. When you look more closely at the New Testament and you, and you sieve all of those titles, you discover that there are two or three offices within the church. At least in a Reformed understanding, two or three offices within the church, there are elders and deacons, or many Reformed believe there are ministers, elders, and deacons. And those who believe in two offices, that is, elders and deacons, distinguish among the elders between ruling elders and teaching elders. Those who earn a living from uh, laboring in word and doctrine, and those who share the rule of the church, the, the oversight of the church together in a body, a body of rule, uh, not individually, but as a body, the session of the church. So, those are kind of, that's all kind of technical stuff uh, for you to tuck away there in the back of your mind so you know a little bit about how the church looks from a New Testament perspective. But I'm concerned about what this has to do with us. In the New Testament, we discover that people need a guide to open the Scriptures to them. Classic example of this is right at the beginning of Acts with the Ethiopian eunuch. He is a, a very important figure from the Ethiopian court. He's visited Jerusalem. He's on his way back home. He's in his chariot. 
It was a continental, Lincoln Continental chariot, I think, or Rolls-Royce, depending on what gets you. But he was a very good chariot. And he's up there reading. It must have had springs because he's able to read a scroll from second Isaiah, or second part of Isaiah. And Philip, the evangelist, is transported by God so that he finds himself there as the chariot is going past. I don't know whether the guy in the chariot had a fright seeing Philip suddenly materialize there in the road or however it happened, but, but it got his attention, and Philip asked the man the question, Do you, what are you reading? Do you understand what you're reading? The man says to him, how can I understand except someone should guide me? In other words, our understanding of Scripture is not something we're meant to be doing on our own, though we should read the Scripture on our own, but ultimately in the context of the church of Jesus Christ, there are guides appointed to help you understand what the Scripture is saying. It's the same when Paul was converted. The Apostle Paul in Acts 26, he tells us that the commission given to him by Christ was that he should go out and open people's eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light. We need guides to open the Scripture to us. Secondly, in the New Testament, we need people to, who prompt us, who regularly prompt us to see and hear and obey and believe what the Bible says. You find this all through this book of Hebrews, where the writer is coming back again and again and again. You say, do you understand what this means? Or in Paul's letter, where he's constantly reminding people. He says to them, oh, I want you to remind you of this. I want you to remember this. Regularly, they are reminding and exhorting and admonishing and persuading and reproving and teaching. Why? Because we need that. We need prompting if we're going to see and hear and obey and believe what God has said in the Scripture. Next, in the New Testament, people need to hear the Word of God all together as a congregation. Me and my Bible and Jesus, that doesn't really cut it on its own. You cannot survive like that. That is not God's way. His way of instructing His church, His way of leading us into godliness is that we should meet on the Lord's day. Even when they still had to go to work in the early period of the church, they still gathered either in the early morning or in the late evening or in the early morning and the late evening. They would gather together as God's people on the Lord's day in public worship, in public worship, where the Scripture was opened and the Scripture was taught. Because there in this public gathering, as we have it here, there are superiors and inferiors, employers and employees. There are governors and citizens. There are ministers and people. There are parents and children. There are masters and servants that are rich and there are poor. There are husbands and wives. And we all together in one place hear what God is saying to us. We don't have to imagine it. We, we don't have to come from stage left and walk into a room and, and say, well, God said this to me. No, we all hear at one time in one place what God has to say to the churches. And it's that that we hear together that feeds our conversations. 
at home, from day to day, throughout the rest of the week. It makes us accountable to one another. Do you remember what the minister said on Sunday? Do you remember what the Word of God said last Lord's Day? Do you remember? We saw that together. Well, if you were here together, then you can bring that up in conversation. You can use that to admonish and encourage and keep each other, as it were, accountable. There are benefits. It benefits those of us in our daily occupations when we scatter tomorrow into our various vocations. We take that word with us, and it benefits other people. There is a repercussion to this. And above all, above all, it's designed to bring you to your eternal salvation. I mean, the whole reason for having public gatherings, hearing the Word of God together, is that every one of you, you believers and your children, might be presented to Jesus Christ on the final day with joy. It is for that that we live. It is for that that we labor for you, the people of God. And says the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, such leaders and guides are Christ's gift to the churches. It's He who gifts apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors, teachers, and so on, for the building up of the body of Christ. It's the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, who makes them effective ministers of the new covenant. When they speak with authority, it's not their own inherent authority, but it is a gifted authority. It is the authority intrinsic, not in who they are, but in the Word of God that they preach. And they are accountable to Him that they should be faithful to Him who appointed Him, to appointed them. Every preacher, elder, overseer, should regularly remind themselves of the words of Ezekiel chapter 30, sorry, chapter 3, verse 17. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them that word. So, in the New Testament, there are leaders. In the New Testament, people need to be fed the Word of God. You see, back in verse 7, these leaders spoke to you the Word of God. That's why you're a Christian. That's why you're still a Christian. That's why you're still holding to Christ. Why? Because they spoke to you the Word of God. When Jesus is talking to Peter, and he's commissioning him, what is, what is Peter's task then to do as, as an apostle and a leader of the church? Jesus says to him, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. When Paul is talking to Timothy, what does Timothy, Paul say to Timothy? Preach the Word. Be urgent in season and out of season. When Peter is writing to pastors and elders, what does he say to them? Feed the flock of God. Ministers and elders are appointed by God. They are tied to God's Word. They're not free to make up new ideas or new laws to impose upon you. They're not free to do that. 
They're not free to convert their hang-ups into legalistic demands that they lay upon your conscience. They're tied to the Word of God, and they're concerned about your salvation. To present every man, woman, boy, and girl in Christ. That's what it's all about. Now, you see, that is precisely what the writer has in mind here. What kind of leaders are these? Look at the definition that he gives. They are those who are keeping watch over your souls. That's their job. That's their task. Now, what does it mean by to watch over your soul? Sometimes the word to watch is linked to prayer. Watch and pray, Jesus said. So they're to do so as a priest, interceding with God on behalf of the people. Moses interceding on behalf of Israel. Well, these leaders are to be people who intercede with God on behalf of the people of God, like a priest, like a nurse who watches over the sick. Paul says to the Thessalonians, we were gentle among you even as a nurse cares for her children. Like a shepherd, Thomas Aquinas, when he's describing the role and and occupation of of a minister or an elder in the church, he takes us back to those words in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, and he says, you are to be shepherds, it says, just like the shepherds of Bethlehem who kept watch over their flocks by night. Your job is to care for the flock of God by day and by night, constantly looking out for danger, constantly looking out to see if there are sores or wounds or bruises upon the people of God that must be tended and cared for, looking for good pasture, searching the Scriptures so that you might provide them with food that nourishes them and builds them up in their faith constantly, like a shepherd, like a watchman. God says to Ezekiel, I made you a watchman. Go up onto the walls, as it were. Keep your eyes open for thieves and robbers who have crept in and are doing damage to the flock of God. Keep your eyes open for enemies and spies who are out to undermine and destroy the church of God. These kind, this kind of leaders, leader is often a, awake when you're asleep, often praying for you in the middle of the night when you are asleep, that God would protect you, that God would care for you. These kind of leaders are sympathetic, sympathetic to your strengths and to your weaknesses, sympathetic to your good days and your bad days, sympathetic because they care for you. Their goal is to defend and protect you from harm. There are ravening wolves that would sneak in dressed like sheep. And there is a roaring lion out there, the devil, who wants to destroy you. This is a tall order. They watch over your souls. Civic officials watch for your physical security. 
medical professionals, watch out for your physical health. Legal experts, watch out for your civil rights before the law. But elders and ministers are responsible to God for your soul. That is, for your never-dying, never-ending, eternal soul. Your spiritual life. Whether or not you are in Christ or out of Christ. Whether you are growing in Christ, happy in Jesus or not. That's their great concern and their great burden. And why such a burden? The author tells us. Because these are people who must give an account It's the language of stewardship. This word stewardship comes up again and again and again in the New Testament. Over and over again, we are given a stewardship. We are handed a deposit of truth that we are to manage. We are handed a body of people that we are to care for. Their welfare is what we eat and sleep for. Their care, their concern is why we get up in the morning. That's what our life is, the body of the church and the deposit of faith. And we are stewards of those things. We are answerable to God for those things. We have to give an account to God for those things. This is not a matter of being successful, whatever that looks like. I don't know what that looks like in the church of God. That's a worldly way of looking at things. But we are to be faithful. We are to be faithful. James warns us. In James chapter 3, he says, Not many of you, not many of you should be teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You either believe that or you don't, by the way. If you're a minister here or training for the ministry, you better, you better be sure before you dare to be a minister or a servant or an, an elder that you really believe that. That you really believe that. The context of that particular phrase is to do with the tongue, the use of the tongue, the danger of stumbling, and what we say that is of leading people into error. You should be afraid of that but also of using the tongue to blow your own trumpet, inflate your own ego. Now, what might this shepherding look like? Here's how Peter puts it. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not because you have to, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those under your charge, but being examples to the flock. You see, what are the marks of a faithless shepherd? You need to know the marks of a a faithless shepherd because the author here is asking us to have confidence in our leaders and submit to them, but he's described what a faithful leader looks like. So you need to know what a faithless leader looks like. Well, they'll be proud, more concerned about their own prestige 
being given their place, being lauded for what they've done and their achievements. Or they will abandon the sheep whenever trouble rises. They'll just get out of town quick. Or they'll fleece the sheep, trying to work out how much money they can get out of the sheep. Or they will domineer the sheep. The old version had it, lording it over, throwing your weight around, telling them what to do as if they were your servants. Jesus said to the disciples, the rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. That must not be, you must not be like that. There's a man in the New Testament that Paul knew. His name is Diotrephes. And Diotrephes has the most terrible statement said against him of anybody I think could ever have in the church of God. Diotrephes loves to have the preeminence. He loves to have the preeminence. He wants the last word. He wants the highest spot. He wants constant praise. He wants regular affirmation. He wants to have the preeminence. He wants to be a church boss. There's nothing more dangerous than that. Somebody, a man who wants to be a church boss, or his wife, who wants to be the church boss through him. That's the kind of person that the Bible is not asking you to have confidence in and to submit to. You see that? The right to trust and submission is earned by the degree to which they watch for your souls. I mean, they may not be good at… they may not be good in in finance, and they may not be excellent in real estate, and they may not be super whiz kids in other ways, but that doesn't really, do you know, that doesn't amount to a hill of beans if they watch for your soul. That is to preserve you from danger and sin, backsliding to instruct you and feed you and promote your faith and obedience. So what does it look like then to trust and obey one's leaders? John Owen is very helpful here. He emphasizes right at the very beginning, when we talk about trusting and obeying, it is with respect to their teaching or their preaching or their pastoral feeding because the very word have confidence in means to have confidence in what they say so that you can do or believe what they say. So submitting to them, when it says submit to them, it has respect not to their person, but to their office. The submitting has to do with their office, not with their person. It's not blind obedience, in other words, or blind submission. We're not simply to do what they dictate because they tell us. 
We, we mustn't get into our heads that somehow or other an elder or a minister in the church has some kind of quasi-Christ-like power that whenever they tell me to do something, I have to do it. It is only in the area with respect to their office that is delimited by the Word of God that they have authority in the church. If an elder comes or a minister comes into your home to counsel your children, or maybe comes to see you and starts saying, well, don't tell anyone else that I was talking to you today. Let's just keep this between us. That should be a signal, a warning signal to you. If somebody chases after you and wants to see you, an elder or a minister chases after you and you don't want it, you don't like them constantly, that's a warning signal. Keeping, keeping careful accounts, it, it is a kind of godliness that, that has been described as we've been describing it. That's the kind of person that you submit to. You submit to them in their office. If they teach or require things that don't belong to their office, then there is no obedience or confidence due to them. Owen, John Owen says, so it is with guides of the church who under a pretense of their office give commands in secular things no way belonging to the ministry of the gospel. So the Word of God is a guide, you see. The job of a minister and elder is to minister the Word of God to the people of God. My opinions on politics are of no interest to you. That is not my job. It's not my job to brainwash you into how you should vote. I have opinions. And if you ask me, I'll probably not tell you. But <laughs> because I would not, never want to confuse the role. In other words, I'm tied to the office to which Christ appointed me. You can do, and you can be a politician any party you like and make up your own party for all I care, that's fine. We'll support you and pray for you and, and everything else. But the, the, the elder and the minister of the church, we have a higher authority to which we are, are answerable. Our duty is to follow only those who teach the things the Lord Jesus appointed them to teach. And I would say this, you must make a judgment on what you hear. You must test the spirits. You must evaluate the teaching. Is this biblical teaching or not? If I get up onto the pulpit here and I started pontificating about how it should be that what we drink at communion should only be Welch's grape juice and that that was the only holy thing for you to drink, do you know what I'd be doing? I'd be making it up. I would probably be safer I just, if I just stuck to you, stuck by saying, we should probably drink at communion what Jesus drank. But I'm not going to say any more about that because it's controversial. And I never get controversial. 
test, test, test everything it said against the Scriptures. So, here's the conclusion. Given godly leadership, and by godly I don't mean absolutely perfect. By godly I don't mean that by every indice they are absolutely super saints. But the kind of godly leadership that we have described, they deserve your trust and your obedience in appropriate matters. That's key. In appropriate, godly leaders deserve your trust and obedience in appropriate matters. That is, the things that are not only in the Bible, but that are important in the Bible. There are some things that are of more importance than others. There are things that are secondary. The the Apostle Paul talks about those things, and those things don't matter. Submit and have confidence. And why? So that they may give an account of you to Christ with joy and not with groaning. I often think of uh, Jeremiah the prophet. You know, he was called to minister to people who didn't ever receive the Word of God that he preached to them. God says to him on one occasion, you know, Jeremiah, you sound like a beautiful bird in a cage with this beautiful song, and they love to come and hear you sing your song, and they love it, and they go away, and they say what a beautiful voice he has and what wonderful things he says, but they don't do what you say. Jeremiah says at one point, he says, Oh, that my head were with what, like waters and my eyes like a fountain of tears, that I, would, that I would pour out my tears night and day and weep for the people of God. You don't want to do that to your leaders, do you? Paul says about some people, I tell you, even with weeping, that they have crucified the Christ of God all over again. Jesus was grieved with the hardness of people's hearts. No, what you want is that on that day when Jesus comes, like the Apostle John, they might be able to say, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Or the language of Paul when he said, what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? It is you. It is you standing on the day of Jesus' coming because you are our glory and our joy. I need to say this to you. For the leadership of this church, you are our glory and our joy. Oh, we've been deficient in all kinds of ways. But that's where the heart of the people that I know in the leadership of this church, that's where their heart lies. Well, here's what God says to His church. May the Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts. Lord, we thank You that You give gifts to men, and we thank You that You give gifts to the church. We pray that as we learn how to trust those You've given to us and follow them as they follow You, that you would build the church. We notice it says that that will be profitable for us as individuals. We will grow. We'll be strengthened. 
It will be profitable for us. And we pray that it will be profitable for us all. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.